Hello and welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. This week, in episode 15, we'll look at the preparations the Kelly Gang made for their battle with the authorities. The Gerildery letter had set out more clearly the grievances of the Kellys and their supporters in the northeast, including the continued incarceration of Alan Kelly and the other two wronged men, jailed on Fitzpatrick's evidence. In the Gerildery letter, Ned had given, in his words, fair warning for a confrontation which would, quote, open the eyes of not only the Victorian police and inhabitants, but the whole British army, and that Fitzpatrick will be the cause of greater slaughter to the Union Jack than St. Patrick was to the snakes and toads of Ireland, unquote. So we're really entering now the parts of the story that many people already know a little about the Kelly armour, and the showdown at Glen Rowan. This is a big part of the story, and it runs over several days, so I will need to cover it in two episodes. This time we'll look at the preparation and the beginning of the action, and next time the fight with the police and the capture of Kelly. I'll remind any new listeners that we are heading into the end stages of the Kelly saga in episode 15 now, and the following couple will bring it all to a close. If you have an interest in the Kelly story, you might get a lot more out of it by starting at the beginning, in episode 2 or 3, before listening through to this one. As always, there's some supporting material and the reference list at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au That's histories with an IES. And contact details can be found there too. Thanks to those who have sent me some lovely comments via email, Twitter or on the Facebook page. It's so rewarding to hear that other folks are enjoying the story as much as I am. I really appreciate you taking the time. I also had a listener let me know about a small misstep in an earlier episode. It was in episode 11, Mansfield and the Sympathisers. I was talking about Mrs Kennedy being keen to recover her husband's watch stolen at Stringybark Creek. I explained how a local barman got the word out, offering a reward, and that the watch did indeed make its way back from the Kellys to the Kennedy family that way. At some point though, instead of saying Kennedy, I said Kelly instead. So I'm sure you would have heard me misspeak that in that section, but like my listener, you were probably able to figure out what it was I meant, so sorry about that. I hope it didn't confuse you at the time. Finally, if you are enjoying the story and you'd be keen to help share the podcast, you could log into iTunes and leave me a nice five-star review there. Good reviews boost its visibility and therefore more people who might enjoy it will be able to find it. Anyway, on with the show for today. This week I'm drawing heavily from Ian Jones's book, Ned Kelly, A Short Life, as he's done a beautiful job of working the evidence into a very engaging narrative. More recently, Peter Fitzsimons also published his very readable take on the story too. And of course I've used many other sources, including the usual suspects and news and police reports, most of which are discoverable online at the Public Records Office or via Trove, the National Library of Australia, or the State Library of Victoria. My sources are recorded in the episode reference list on the website. Last episode, we noted that the gang had been a long time on the run without staging any major outrages, such as they did at Euroa and Gerildery. 
They'd been seen in the region and had even attended some large public gatherings. But Ned was wary of the Queensland trackers, and so they generally restricted their movements, compared to the past anyway. And during this time, there was some conjecture that perhaps they were thinking of trying to escape their life on the run. Jones reports that when Jim Kelly was released from jail in January, keen to avoid any more time in jail himself and hoping to get his life back on track, he also encouraged the boys to disband and to leave the area for their own survival. He suggested friends could come in to the foursome, replacing one person at a time, to keep up the illusion of the gang still being spotted or tracked riding around the neighbourhood. But as each member left separately to make their way to another colony or overseas, the gang itself would finally just dissolve without a trace. It was a good idea, but Jim's urgings were unsuccessful. As mentioned in an earlier episode, it's unlikely that Ned or Dan would have entertained the idea while their mother was still behind bars. And Tom Lloyd later explained that, quote, Ned was committed to the rebellion, unquote. So that might indicate a bigger idea was being considered even in January. There were hints from the police spies and the general rumour mill that something big was in the wings. Kelly himself had made previous threats, which suggested overturning trains or facing off the whole British army, should the authorities not release Allen, and address the grievances of those selectors being ignored in the northeast. He was a big, bombastic, overly self-confident man, but they should have noted he was also generally a man of his word, so clues were slowly mounting during 1880 that should have had the authorities on guard. It seems that Ned, the gang, and possibly a good core of other local sympathisers began working out the desired action and considering the preparations required. They would not have been out of place in Churchill's war bunker, their plans being secretly formulated and all care taken in the details. First, they needed to do something spectacular that would be certain to bring immediate attention and a large number of police into their trap at the desired place and time. If large police numbers and haste were required, the police would deliver those officers and equipment by rail to the northeast. If the Kellys could capture or destroy that police train, take some hostages perhaps, they would certainly then have the attention of the government and possibly also some very valuable bargaining chips to negotiate Alan's release with. One other thought could be that a shocking action of this size would likely draw local police and guards in too, perhaps leaving the banks unguarded. Another hold-up of one of these bigger banks could then be undertaken, bringing in much-needed funds for their war chest. And so the potential actions, targets, how to equip themselves, other requirements and details were all nutted out over the coming weeks and months. Ned certainly was a bold and fearless character. He was no snivelling and pleading wimp when he was in the front line of fire, and he was quite prepared to physically be in the front line of any action. But he did look at improving his chances of survival all the same. And the solution that he came to which in the end was to ensure his place in history in quite an engaging way, was to create some armour, the famous Kelly armour. And I'm guessing almost all the listeners would have seen an image of the Kelly armour 
or seen some iconic or idealised image in a cartoon, artwork or statue, maybe even a letterbox. I love seeing the many ways these things are created and I'll have to put a few examples in the episode notes for you to enjoy too. Think of those very famous Nolan paintings. And I, um, I may have mentioned before the wonderful pedestrian bridge over the Hume Freeway on the approach to Melbourne, made from rusting core 10 with a slit along the top for walkers to look out from. It completely evokes the Kelly helmet, whether that was intended or not. The Kelly armour is central to their ongoing legend and our enduring interest in the Kelly story to this day. It's interesting to consider what brought Ned to the notion of body armour. Caulfield's Kelly Encyclopedia records many suggestions about why armour might have come to mind for Ned, and I'll mention a few of the theories here. Kelly is known to have read and been interested in Blackmore's 1869 book called Lorna Doon, where the baddies were fearless and uninterested in society's rules, and they appear to wear some sort of armour. Jones quotes the following passage from Lorna Doon as a possible source of inspiration for Ned. The story has the outlaws riding across misty, dark moors with their plunder, and it describes them as, quote, heavy men and large of stature, reckless how they bore their guns or how they sate their horses, with leather, jerkins and long boots, and iron plates on breast and head, unquote. So one can imagine a young man, already a bit of a wrongin' and an outcast, reading and romanticising these characters from the book, and forming a picture in his head for his own gear. I mean, lots of youthful outcasts copy the identifying uniform and gangster swagger of those they're impressed by. Another theory about what sparked the idea for Ned came from a birthday celebration for the Prince of Wales, which was hosted at Beechworth in 1873. Some medieval Japanese armour was on display, as part of a procession through town, and though it was very different to the heavy metal suits the gang eventually made, you can see that its design could have planted a little seed, should Ned have ever seen it. The wonderful Burke Museum in Beechworth still has a set of that armour on display, And it's worth a look if you ever make it to Beechworth. I do note that some sources call this armour Chinese. And that's not surprising considering the other wealth of Chinese historical items from the Gold Rush period that are housed in that museum. A fairly recent article hosted on the Culture Victoria website about the Burke Museum itself notes that at the Beechworth Parade of 1873, a Chinese miner was wearing the Japanese suit of armour. So that could account for the confusion. I couldn't find an image of the actual armour from the Burke Museum, but I have posted another image from the web just so that you can see what a similar Japanese suit of armour looks like. And then Caulfield also draws our attention to a biblical reference from Isaiah 2-4 about beating your swords into plowshares. So Kelly actually took the opposite tack. He beat his plowshares into the metaphorical sword. (laughs) So throughout February and March of 1880, an odd series of crimes began being reported across the region. The theft of plough mould boards. 
In February, Nicholson wrote a report about investigating those thefts, saying he had Senior Constable Kelly on the job. No relation. They had found some footprints at the scene indicating there was more than one thief and that one set of those prints had small-sized boots with a larrikin heel. Well, we know who wears the larrikin gear in Greeter. Soon after, a spy confirmed it was the Kellys taking the mould boards. He didn't comment on what they might be doing with them, but more was stolen from Glenrowan and the surrounds in March. Plough mould boards are the heavy metal forms that make up the earth-piercing, pointed and curved plough blade. Well, it's really hard to say. <laughs> this blade is pulled through the earth to lift and turn it over for cultivation. Again, I'll place an image on the website, but as you can imagine, a number of these would be required to make up armour large enough to cover a man. So while several were reported stolen, each suit might require seven or eight for construction, and many others could have been acquired from families willing to support the Kellys. Caulfield says that later evidence from the Lloyds suggested the first suit, which was made for Ned, came from the mouldboards belonging to the McAuliffe family. The McAuliffes were close friends of the Kellys from Greta, and they were known supporters of the Irish National Land League. The League was an Irish political organisation which sought to help poor tenant farmers. While the organisation renounced violence as a tactic, the period of the Land League's agitation in Ireland came to be known as the Land War. And there were certainly parallel land issues in the northeast of Victoria, with the Victorian land boards being misrun by the government and misused by the police as a form of control over the selectors. The famous and iconic Kelly armour, which today for us identifies Ned Kelly and the Kelly gang, really was astounding in its creation. Jones believes Ned's prototype armour may have been created by the gang themselves, possibly with the help of more skilled metal workers, but in a bush forge around Bald Hill. Setting the blades into a fire to be heated until glowing, they were then placed across the curve of a green cut log, used as their anvil, and hammered into shape. Each section was then riveted to the other, making up the first breastplate. Once cooled, this was then tested to ensure the forging had not caused the metal to become brittle. The testing was done by firing a rifle bullet at the breastplate from about 10 yards, that's close to 10 metres. No doubt the gang were pleased to see that while the bullet caused a deep dent in the metal, it did not rupture the plate. So the other pieces, the backplate, the aprons, the shoulder guards, were made in a similar fashion. The helmet was made cylindrical, with the lower square plate front dropped down to allow a narrow slit for vision. Apparently there are small holes punched in the top to allow for padding to be threaded on the inside. Maggie made padded skull caps for under the helmets, and one, probably Ned's, was photographed with the armour after his capture, so we can get a bit of an idea of what they looked like. And good padding around their heads would have been essential in those helmets. Maloney suggests the helmet rested across the top of the skull by a strap on the inside. 
I've seen the armour a number of times, but I don't think I've ever noticed that detail, and I'll look for it at the next opportunity. Jones also says the resulting helmets closely resemble the massive Holm-style helmets of the Crusades period, and that's an interesting take too. There's no denying the resulting suits were formidable and very impressive, though I cannot see them without thinking how heavy they must have been. Maloney records one set weighing 95 pounds. That's 43 kilos. That's a huge weight, even for a big man like Ned. What kind of fellas could think they could get around and fight effectively in such heavy armour? So though Ned's armour was considered a success, the bulk and the weight did worry Joe, and he was concerned by the loss of agility and the restricted vision. But Ned, with his usual self-confidence, was convinced this would do the job, and they went ahead with creating armour for the rest of the gang. While it was possible to ride in the heavy armour, its value would more likely be in close work, especially since there was no protection for the legs. But if their early thoughts were for staging a hold-up at a large bank, this might have proved the cover they needed. But as we'll soon hear, plans seemed to progress in the coming months to a more aggressive scenario, where they might then expect a little more mobile action required. I would have thought at that point the heavy armour could become a problem. But clearly I'm no judge. If it were me, I would have pitched the lot and run away at the first opportunity. So it requires a certain personality type to make their plan look like a viable one. Anyway, Ned's armour was the first, apparently. It is possible that the other three were forged um, by supportive blacksmiths in the area, and information on who they might have been was kept very, very quiet. Helping the gang in this manner, particularly after the revised and extended action plan was on the cards, might make them accomplices to treason. So anonymity was essential. Sources do suggest a number of potential forgers, though, including Culfs at Millowa, Millowa now being famous for its delicious wines and cheese production, uh, Delaney's at Greta, Charles Knight at Beechworth, and Tom Strawhair at Woolshed amongst others. Now, interestingly, a report of investigations on the armour worn by Joe Byrne was published in October 2004. The author's investigators, Cray et al., concluded that Joe's suit was made from, quote, good quality rolled steel similar to that found in ploughshares, unquote. From our other sources, Joe's was supposedly one made by the local blacksmiths, but the 2004 investigation indicates it was fabricated under a low heat, known as cold working, and indicates that it was more likely to have been produced by amateurs than in a professional forge. That then is more consistent with the stories we heard about Ned's suit being worked over a log. Cray also notes of Joe's suit, quote, There is no evidence of bullet impact on this armour, except for the mark which might have arisen from an impact of bullet, but if so, this occurred almost certainly at a later date, after World War I, unquote. So that's amazing to me, on a couple of levels. Not least that Joe's armour does not appear to have been hit during the siege, which we're going to be talking about soon, but which was quite ferocious as far as flying bullets goes. 
and having no knowledge of metallurgy myself, I am in awe of the specialist skills that can read the evidence in this way. So just so as not to keep you in suspense, though I've provided a link to the article if you are keen, the post-Kelly dating has to do with traces of tungsten being found on the mark. Apparently tungsten was not introduced into ball ammunition until World War I. So there you go, something to file away for a trivia night question. You might get lucky. When was tungsten introduced to ball ammunition? Pick me, pick me, pick me. <laughs> the four suits were similar, but they were identifiably different. They had various rivet points and some elements were attached with leather straps. For years after the Glenrowan siege, various suits were held in different places and it was later discovered that the parts from each suit were mixed up and reconstructed incorrectly. So it was well into the 1990s before they were all correctly identified and reunited with their original suit components. Soon after the siege ended, the armour was tried on at the scene by numerous police and spectators and it was probably then that the parts were jumbled. The suits were purloined by persons of authority and some made their way into the hands of private collectors. Soon afterwards, Standish was agitating to have them all destroyed so as not to become items of veneration for the rebels and the criminal classes. But happily that didn't happen and they are now on display at various locations complete with their marks and evidence of the siege. Ned's suit is usually on display in the State Library of Victoria. Joe's, as far as I know, is still in a private collection, but is generally loaned for exhibitions, and I believe a replica is housed at the Benella Museum. Dan Kelly's and Steve Hart's are usually on display at the Victoria Police Museum in Melbourne, and that's another wonderful museum full of intriguing items, if sometimes a little gruesome if you get the chance to visit there as well. Look, no matter what you think of Kelly the man, these suits really are such fantastic items. They're absolute works of art. Anyway, by the time the mould board thefts began, it appears that the plan for a direct confrontation of some sort was well underway. Meanwhile, around May, with little progress being made in pursuing the Kellys, Standish had been wanting to cut back expenditure even further. He had recently provided a report to the Chief Secretary outlining the status of the hunt and the breakdown of costs. From October 1878, when the police were shot at Stringybuck Creek, to February of 1880, they had spent a total of £19,000 that is a vast sum, and no result to show for it. The largest part of that amount, more than £8,000, was for, quote, personal allowances under regulations, unquote. So sounds like Kelly was right in implying that many members of the force were using the outbreak to line their pockets. Nicholson himself was critical of Hare's huge expenditure during his previous command, Despite this, Standish wanted to bring the favoured Hare back into command. When the matter was raised, Nicholson wrote a number of letters objecting to his removal. 
feeling a breakthrough was imminent and warning against changing horses in midstream. Nicholson might have felt that he should be given credit for the inactivity of the gang over the past 10 months while he was in charge, and he went over the head of Standish to plead with the new Chief Secretary of Victoria. But he was told that Standish's decision was no more than a change in bowlers, nothing personal, mate. Standish wanted a fresh team on the job, but apparently not too fresh. And so, after almost a year, on June 2nd, Superintendent Hare once again returned to the northeast, replacing Nicholson. The rivalry, dysfunction and hostile factions in the force is clearly demonstrated by these revolving doors from the various camps. Even if Nicholson was stale and getting no results, competent and fresh leadership does not appear to be the motivation for the shuffle. Sadlier, the local, and the one with probably the best understanding of the entire situation, was passed over, while Hare, the previously failed favourite of Standish, once again took a turn. And it must have been quite a frustration for Nicholson, as around this time his spies were reporting some kind of action was imminent, and one even reported that armour was being made. But those reports made no sense to the police, and they were pretty much ignored. Just as an aside, May also saw the discharge from the police force of Kelly's nemesis Fitzpatrick. A memo from Standish on the 10th noted his opinion that, quote, the ex-constable's conduct during the time he was a member of the force was generally bad and discreditable to the force, unquote. So probably an element of understatement there then, given all the trouble that followed Fitzpatrick's service. I think we can make some assumptions about the ferociousness and the riskiness of the fighting the gang were willing to engage in, from their desire for the armour. Some think the armour was just made for safety in a potential bank hold-up, but others believe the gang expected the armour would give them the time required to pull off a more audacious action, a grand plan that included a rebellion and confrontation on a scale not seen since the Eureka Rebellion in Ballarat in 1854. Surviving such a direct conflict with armed police would mean their plan must include a way to reduce the numbers of police that they would have to confront. So rather than preparing for a simple incident which would draw police to the wrong place while they robbed a bank, over the months the plan appears to have morphed into one of a quite shocking and murderous first action in an armed rebellion. And it's possible the result they desired was potentially a complete secession of the northeast from the colony. This is a much grander plan than we usually associate with bushrangers. The fact that the local sympathisers were mostly Irish Catholics with a historical desire to remove themselves from the British yoke and who were already well acquainted with the idea of having to fight for their land and their causes, it probably makes this theory a little less surprising than I find it today. So, towards mid-year, with the armour ready for use, the gang clarified their next steps. 1. Commit a shocking outrage that would draw a trainload of Victoria's finest to the northeast. If the Queensland Native Police trackers were also on board, all the better. Though actually that would be pure luck, 
Kelly was unaware that they had just been decommissioned by the Victoria Police and were preparing to make their way back home to Queensland. 2. Gather quietly at Glen Rowan with all the required supplies and armour and gather up any potential troublemakers in town and wait for the train, with your willing sympathiser army secretly hidden in the bush nearby, to be called on when required. 3. Rip up the tracks just north of Glen Rowan and cause the speeding train to derail, killing or disabling a large number of the police on board. Bring in your armed reinforcements if required. 4. Kill or capture any remaining passengers to be used as bargaining chips in the resulting negotiations with the shocked authorities. It's possible the final part of the plan was to ride to Benella and rob the bank, gaining money to set themselves up and there declare their new republic. And there is some hearsay evidence to suggest that was the intention, to finish off their grand deed. So that's quite shocking. They nearly had everything in place. The Kellys just needed more ammunition for themselves and for their selector army. So Maggie and Tom made a trip to Melbourne. Police were, of course, following and watching them, and Maggie and Tom, adept at achieving what they wanted under the gaze of the police, spent a few days sightseeing in Melbourne. Maloney says a sympathiser named Mick Nolan also made the trip south with them. Nolan went to Rossiers, a gunsmith in Elizabeth Street, Melbourne, and brought 200 Martini Henry rifle cartridges, 200 Webley revolver cartridges, and 200 Spencer cartridges, explaining to the storekeeper that he needed such a large amount as he was leaving for New Zealand to join his brother. The police, of course, were alarmed by the purchases at Rossiers, suspecting New Zealand was probably not their intended destination. When Maggie and Tom boarded the train to return to Greta, two detectives also came aboard, expecting to find a cache of ammunition. But despite searching all their gear, no bullets were discovered, and it seems that Mick Nolan had not boarded the train either. So once again, the gang seems to have easily arranged matters to completely slip through any police surveillance. Other people on board known to be from the neighbourhood, were also searched, but to no avail. Police were now aware there may be an alarming amount of ammunition coming into the northeast, But Hare was still not able to draw together the other various bits of information coming in, such as the theft of the mouldboards and the whispers about armour. In June, Hare had got a report from Nicholson's agent, known as Diseased Stock Agent, as that's how the agent referred to the Kelly gang in his reports, diseased stock. Hare reported that the agent expected a bank robbery would be undertaken very soon. Hare asked him, I hear they are going to appear in armour. He said, yes, no doubt of it. I said, how is it to be used? His reply was, they will wear it when they are robbing the bank. I said, is it bulletproof? He said, yes, at 10 yards. I said, I do not believe that any armour ever made that a man could carry would stand a Martini Henry bullet at 10 yards. So incomprehensible were these latest reports that Hare actually sacked Nicholson's spy after he again reported nonsensical information about armour. 
Hare completely failed to consider that any of Ned's threats might be about to occur, or to imagine that people in the northeast might take matters into their own hands in any confronting way. But the Kellys were about to don metal armour and bring the fight right to the police and the government of Victoria. Last episode, we talked about how Joe's childhood friend, Aaron, had begun working with the police, and that his relationship with them, and therefore his motivations, may have evolved over the many months he worked with them. But heading towards mid-year, it seems that even the gang were now pretty convinced Aaron was no longer on their side, even if he was not entirely on the side of the police either. Personally, I cannot get a clear impression of Aaron. I've read a lot, but I'm still not sure where to place him on that sliding scale of sympathiser or police informant. What we do know is that at some point in May of 1880, the gang decided where they placed him on that scale, and it was squarely at the traitor's end. Though many others had given up on Aaron, Late in 1879, he was still quietly meeting with Joe, and at this point at least, Aaron was keeping that information to himself. So I'm reading there that he maintained, at least until then, a loyalty of sorts with Joe. During the many months, working first as Hare's and then Nicholson's agent, it seems that information was also being passed to the police by Aaron's brother, Jack and there was sometimes a fair discrepancy in their stories that came to the police. Some police, including Detective Ward, were therefore convinced that Aaron was being very selective about what he was passing on for the money that they paid him, and that he was still supporting the gang. It could be that Jack, and not Aaron, was responsible for any alleged betrayals of the gang, which later were to have such grave consequences for Aaron, or it could be that Detective Ward, the consummate spymaster, was just not a fan of Aaron's, and he was quite willing to be a little less careful about protecting that particular agent. Unlike Hare, he felt that Aaron was still withholding information about the gang, which actually he was in the case of Joe's visits. So Ward was happy to feed information into the mix himself that would foster more suspicion of Aaron amongst the sympathisers and the Kellys to perhaps draw the gang out to warn him off, and thus punish him for cheating the police. Ward was ruthless enough to know that this could be dangerous for Aaron, but he didn't care. The family and friends of the Kellys were already convinced he was working for the police. It could hardly be hidden anymore. In December, he had married Alan Barry, known as Belle. If you recall from the last episode... After the discovery by Joe's mother of Aaron sleeping in the police camp above her home early in 1879, she broke off an engagement between her daughter and Aaron, and it set off a bit of a feud between the families. Belle Barry was unconnected with the sympathiser families, so she probably didn't know what she was getting into at the Woolshed Valley with Aaron. Since April, police had been staying at Sherrett's house, and Ward took very little care to disguise them. By now he was really keen for evidence of Aaron's traitor status to be discovered and for that information to make its way to the gang. He was treating Sherrett as bait. It seems likely that he loved Joe well from their childhood closeness, 
but as even Joe turned on him, he may have found himself in an irredeemable place, and his marriage may have changed his attitude. Or perhaps he was becoming reconciled to the inevitability of the gang's demise. Maybe he can make some money out of that at least. But you can still read his behaviour in another way. Having the police in his house, right under his nose, may have been a calculated move to ensure that he knew what was going on with the police. Helpful if he still had some loyalty to the gang. Or he might have had them there simply because it was lucrative. He didn't have to tell them everything he knew, even if they were in his house and he was taking their money. Or to delay Kelly's capture and string out the hunt. It was a nice little earner for Aaron and he was always one to look for serving himself in any situation. With the police command not being very careful, it did become common knowledge that Aaron had the police billeted at his house, and this was pretty much the last straw for the Kelly gang. Even Joe was now certain that Aaron couldn't be trusted. In May, Joe approached Aaron's mother, and he told her that he planned to kill Aaron and Aaron's handler, Detective Ward, he told her that Ward had got close to catching the gang and he considered Aaron to be instrumental in that near success. He had to go. But perhaps this message was a warning from Joe that would encourage Aaron to leave the area altogether. Surely Joe held some residual feeling for his lifelong friend. But it also made clear to Aaron that the gang now considered him a traitor and Ned had outlined in the Gerildery letter that those working with the police would suffer great consequences and that they should leave the area immediately. If Aaron was wise, he would have heeded Joe's warning and left. The gang's plans had solidified and now poor Aaron was going to be their catalyst. He was now a marked man. Glen Rowan was chosen as the battle site as the expected train would speed northwards taking police to the Woolshed Valley. So that would be the overturned train that Ned had spoken about at Euroa, and the savage beginning of his, quote, colonial stratagem to open the eyes of the police, the public, and the entire British army, unquote, that he'd forewarned of in the Gerildery letter. He had cautioned that if his mother was not released and some action taken to relieve the injustices to those poor farmers in the northeast, quote, I will not exactly show them what cold-blooded murder is, but wholesale and retail slaughter, unquote. He said all the Irish police were traitors to their people and the others oppressors of his class on behalf of the establishment. So under those conditions, it was his obligation to rise up and help free his people from this yoke. Now, just how many people he thought he was representing, we do not know, but he clearly had large enough numbers on his side to make him think such a plan would be welcomed by his community. His letters had given previous warning, and so now he felt justified in giving his orders full force. Quote, I am a widow's son outlawed and my orders must be obeyed, unquote. He certainly felt himself special and especially persecuted, but it's interesting that so many others fell under his spell too. Maloney estimates the region's population in the northeast at that time was about 40,000, and he suggests that the unclaimed reward at the very least indicated that a good number clearly shared Ned's sense of resentment towards the establishment. I can't imagine his direct supporters would be any high percentage of that large number, though. 
Many in the region must have just been going about their business, with their heads down, even with their difficult living circumstances. Still, for decades they waited while politicians promised reform with no result, while unfair land laws and taxes fell on the poor, and in all disputes the wealthy and the landed were treated preferentially. Added to this, the population of Irish Catholics, feeling the continuation of ancient disenfranchisement from the English legal and political systems, it probably made sense to them to join Ned in this action. And so it does seem viable that such an uprising could have occurred, albeit by a smaller number of northeastern citizens. A charismatic leader can really galvanise an unhappy people, and Ned certainly was such a leader. So Maloney describes a group of frustrated locals, Ned amongst them, meeting in Greta and talking of some way to take control of their lives, relieving them of the burden of the corrupt government, police and authorities. Jones also suggests that, with the encouragement of the group, Ned and Joe drew up a declaration for the Republic of Northeastern Victoria, and he believed that copies of that declaration were printed in the form of handbills. There were rumours that such an item was found on Ned's person after the siege. Dr John Nicholson, who treated Ned at that time, took a number of Ned's personal items, and he would have been the most likely candidate to have seen such a document if it existed, but if so, it doesn't seem to have survived. Jones believes that at least one other copy did survive, and it was seen in a display in the United Kingdom in 1962 by an Australian journalist, considered a very reliable witness. But to my knowledge, no verified copy has been made public. You might think if it was in a formal institution in 1962, it may have been discoverable, if there was a strong enough will, but we can live in hope. Gems like this do occasionally return from lost archives from time to time. And it took more than a hundred years just to get the Kelly armour back together. Jim Kelly and Tom Lloyd in later years also spoke about such a declaration being recorded. And in more recent times, relatives of Tom Lloyd told both Jones and Maloney that exercise books existed listing minutes of meetings regarding the establishment of a republic. But again, to my knowledge, to date anyway, no physical items have been produced. So more solid evidence seems to be lacking for that theory of forming a republic, and that part of the Glenrowan motivation can still only be considered a possibility rather than known. If the aim of such a civil uprising was part of the Glenrowan action, what we thought of as um, Bushranger's confrontation with the hated police takes on a much more interesting hue, and it must be further defined as an act of sedition, even treason. Sedition is generally defined as language or behaviour that is intended to persuade other people to oppose their government. Treason goes one step further. It's action. The crime of betraying one's country, especially by attempting to kill or overthrow the sovereign or government. I think Kelly's been involved, or is about to be involved, in both. And he certainly fits the rebel definition too. You can check that one out yourself. It's hard to know when a criminal act of sedition flips over into a justifiable challenge to an unacceptable civil order, but I think that Kelly's motivations are more personal, and his criminal history doesn't bode well for arguing that his actions might eventually be in the public good. 
such as one might do for other civil rights movements agitating and then morphing into civil unrest. All the thievery and the payback that went on around Greta over those many years, how could they construct a healthy and prosperous republic on those bones? I know there is a lot of conjecture still about the call for a republic theory, but a great deal of the information seems persuasive to me, at least as far as Ned wanting to take his fight directly to the government. How developed a plan for secession might have been, we cannot know, but he meant to start an armed uprising of some sort. He says so in his letters. If it were only about killing police, he had many opportunities to do that. The Kellys were so superior in the bush they could have just picked them off one by one. From my reading, I do think the action at Glenrowan was intended to shake the Victorian government to its core, supported by numerous farmers and locals. But you're welcome, of course, to make your own judgment. We just cannot be definitive on this matter. Now, before we move on, just one more aside. It is coincidental, I suppose, but the same day that the Kelly gang put their plan into action was the day that their legal outlaw status lapsed. Anyway, let's see how the plan, whatever its complete set of motivations, actually panned out. Late on Saturday the 26th of June, Joe and Dan rode off to the Woolshed Valley, towards Aaron's hut, and the inevitable slide into carnage began. Jones reports it like this. Once in the valley, they bailed up Aaron's neighbour, Anton Wick, taking him in handcuffs to Sherrett's hut, where Aaron, his wife, her mother and four police were staying. Joe made Wick knock on the back door and call out to Aaron, saying he was drunk and couldn't find his way home. Aaron, recognising Anton's voice, had no concern about coming to the back door, but when he opened it, Joe immediately opened fire with the double-barrelled shotgun that they'd taken from McIntyre at Stringybark Creek. The killing of Sherritt was seen as an assassination more than an act of personal vengeance. The newspapers called it an act of terrorism, intended to warn police collaborators. So if they were not cold-blooded murderers before, they certainly were now. Belle and her mother were horrified and screamed. The four police dived for cover in the bedroom, and in the darkened room they tried to look out of the window to see how many men there were outside. Joe fired three times. Sherrod had injuries to his chest and his neck, and he died almost immediately. Now the boys already knew that the police would be on site. Their intention was not to kill them. After witnessing the murder, the policemen at the hut were expected to dash off to Beechworth and report that the Kellys had murdered Aaron, which would then bring the police train north and set the gang's plan in motion. So the boys taunted and threatened the police from outside for a while, and then, releasing Anton from his handcuffs, left to meet up with Ned and Steve to get everything ready for the onslaught. In those days, no regular trains ran on a Sunday, so a report of Aaron's murder by the gang, and they would have made sure that the hiding police knew it was the Kelly gang, should draw a special police train to Wangaratta, delivering large numbers of police to flood the Woolshed Valley in pursuit of the gang. So Dan and Joe needed to be back in place with Ned at Glenrowan to intercept that expected train. 
The armour and other equipment and supplies had been brought to Glen Rowan and the gang would later take control of Ann Jones Inn on the north side of the railway tracks at Glen Rowan to await the police train. Jones claims the gang's rifles and most of the modern weapons were distributed amongst the sympathisers who were to join the gang at Glen Rowan after the initial confrontation. Signal rockets, probably Chinese fireworks, were in place to send the message when required. The gang kept the closer range weapons as their armour should allow them that advantage. The selection of the Glen Rowan Inn belonging to Anne Jones, as their base, may have rested on Ned's feeling that she had been a little too fond of the police. Hers was the preferred drinking hole of the local constabulary. The other Glenrowan Hotel, McDonald's, was owned by a known sympathiser, so Kelly wouldn't want to bring trouble there, though probably there were local sympathisers standing by, waiting in case they were needed. They expected the train to be along in just a few hours, as a police report from Beechworth, near the woolshed, would be telegraphed to Melbourne within a short time of Aaron being shot. So Ned and Steve went to watch the last train pass at 9pm on Saturday, and then they went to remove the tracks just up from Glenrowan Station. They had chosen a section on a curved embankment on a downhill stretch. The train would be doing a good speed here and the derailment into the gully very likely to roll the carriages and cause maximum damage. It really was a terrifying plan. Though to be fair, Ned did tell some witnesses that they might stop the train at Glenrowan before the broken tracks and fight the police there. So it's hard to know exactly which plan he was going to act on. But either way, they could surely expect many casualties. They found they couldn't remove the tracks themselves as special tools were needed to disengage the lines from the sleepers. So they bailed up some railway workers who were camped in tents along the line. Unfortunately, they were unable to remove the fixtures and Ned left Steve guarding them while he headed to the station master's house to see if the equipment needed was there. It was about 1am by then. The station master said the local plate layers were needed so again the station master was left with Steve while Ned rounded up the plate layers. Ned was becoming agitated, expecting the train soon and worrying that the rails would not be lifted in time. Reardon, one of the plate layers, appalled at the carnage that would result, thought that if they just removed one length, they were about seven metre lengths, there was a possibility that a speeding train might just be able to clear the gap. So he worked hard at convincing Ned that only one length was needed to ensure total derailment. And Ned was convinced. It was a slow process, even getting that one length up. It had taken 90 minutes, though Reardon later gave evidence that the task might only have taken five. Ned was relieved. Surely the train would be along at any moment now. When Dan and Joe arrived, they relayed what had happened at the Sherrits' hut and they confirmed the four policemen were there, so they felt sure their plan was on track. Just be patient, the train would arrive. Ned eventually took the gathered labourers, plate layers and station master over to the Glenrowan Inn, where Anne Jones was expected to feed and make them comfortable. The women and children stayed at the station master's house opposite. 
The gang readied their armour and prepared their equipment, making use of one of the rooms at the hotel. But amazingly, by the morning, still no train. They surveyed the town and came across the local school teacher, Thomas Kernow, his wife and children and his sister and brother-in-law, all out for a morning buggy ride. The women were bailed up at the station master's house and the men were marshalled into the hotel. And others arrived at the inn as the morning wore on too, including a well-liked local man named Martin Cherry. He lived about a mile down the Benalla Road. Ned had told the crowds of his plans to wreck the special train containing police and black trackers that would be passing by soon, and he continued with the usual performance of telling the forced audience about his family's plight and the trouble with police. But as the day wore on, they were becoming confused and anxious about the absence of the expected train. It seemed a very slow response, even for the Victorian police. In fact, in shooting Aaron the night before, Joe and Dan had terrified the police there, and none of the four would leave the hut until daylight, fearing that they would be ambushed and killed if they did. Even in the morning they wasted more time making plans to send the locals with the news rather than just riding out themselves. This delayed any police response from Melbourne, as no one else had a clue about it until later on Sunday. So word did not reach Hare at Benella until after 1pm on the Sunday, more than 18 hours after Aaron's death. On a Sunday, many of the senior police were hard to find. Standish got his message quite late in the day. One thing they did immediately do, though, was to contact O'Connor, who was preparing to travel back to Queensland with his trackers, and they asked if he would oblige by joining the transport north and once again helping with the pursuit. So, despite them being stood down, Kelly would have at least been pleased to know they'd now be on the train after all. But the afternoon rolled on and still no train appeared. Their expected confrontation was already nearly a day late and things were starting to get messy at the hotel. The gang had arranged for music to be played, for dancing, sports and other entertainments in the afternoon to amuse their prisoners, but some had been drinking quite heavily and Anne Jones was becoming concerned about all the grog consumed. During the course of the afternoon, Dan and Joe had told Kurnow that after some shooting which had occurred near Beechworth, a police train would be sent and they were, quote, were going to send the train and its occupants to hell, unquote. Kurnow began to consider plans to foil the derailment and Jones quotes him saying, The intention to do something to baffle the murderous designs of the gang grew on me and I resolved to do my utmost to gain the confidence of the outlaws and to make them believe me to be a sympathiser with them. So he told Ned there was a gun at the station master's house and that someone might do them harm with it. Ned was grateful. Giving him this information had worked as a ploy to gain Ned's confidence. Ned really was a trusting chap, taking a man at his word. After that gerildery betrayal by living, you'd think he would have been more careful. Kurnow now considered the red llama scarf his sister was wearing might make a good flag if he could just get away and wave down the train. He filed that thought away for now and he continued acting like a friend to the Kellys. By evening there was still no sign of the train and their lack of sleep was beginning to affect them. They'd gambled on a shocking first strike and inexplicably no train had been sent yet. 
Now they worried that some other attack may have been formulated by the police. Maybe they were now the ones in a firing line of some cunning plan. At last, Ned decided on rounding up the local policeman, Constable Bracken. Bracken was said to have been quite ill with gastric flu and probably would not have left his station that day. When Kurnow heard that Ned was off to collect the officer, he asked if he could come along and then take his sick wife and their family to their home, which was just near the police barracks, assuring Ned he was with him heart and soul and so no threat at all. Ned believed him and he agreed he could take his family home, but another couple of hours passed before Ned was ready to make the move. With their body armour on, Ned and Joe, along with Kurnow and some others, all traipsed down to the police barracks, and they bailed up the constable, then leaving Kurnow to continue home with the warning, quote, Go quietly to bed and don't dream too loud. They took Bracken and the others back to the hotel. It's clear this action at Glenrowan was an especially important event for the gang. No doubt they were aware it could be the fight to the death for them. They were all dressed well, but Ned looked especially smart, and he was wearing the green and gold hero sash given to him all those years ago in Avenal for valiant and brave action in saving the drowning boy. The sash was something he could be proud of, and that perhaps gave him memories of being valued by his community. Maybe he felt he was taking another risk this day on behalf of his downtrodden community. Perhaps he truly considered this act of war another brave move to help the oppressed. It seems to be a matter of pride for Ned. But, it seems to me, such a vicious and murderous route to take. I guess he was just not a man for peaceful protest. I don't think Robin Hood thought of inflicting carnage on this scale. I can't stop thinking of all the families that would have been affected. It's devastating to consider. In Melbourne, by late afternoon, finally the police were organising themselves. Police and horses were being gathered, and Standish was arranging permission to override the law forbidding railway services operating on the Sabbath, so that the special train could take the police north, to the scene of Aaron's murder. Handsome cabs were dispatched to local journalists inviting them to join the train, and it was eventually ready to leave after 10pm on Sunday. They needed to stop in Benalla to collect Hare and the other officers there, so this would have them passing through Glenrowan at around 3am. That's 32 hours after Aaron was killed. At Glenrowan, the gang had been waiting all that time too. As Sunday wore on, the likelihood of success waned. Mrs Jones's hospitality was stretched to the limits as more and more people were collected during the day up to 62, and by nightfall, after a day of merriment, singing and dancing, everyone was becoming exhausted. Ned considered what could be salvaged. Perhaps fatigue was taking over now. He let Kurnow and several others leave, and the inn now held about 40. Some time after 2am, Ned, probably realising the plan was beyond redemption, and the gang was now too tired to continue much longer, decided that all the prisoners should leave. But, as usual, he had to give them the big Kelly lecture first. Just as that was coming to an end, Joe burst in, telling them the train was coming. Adrenaline would have kicked in. At last! The crowd were all ordered to be quiet and to stay where they were. 
The gang then donned their armour and readied for a fight. So, the action is all about to start. This was the famous Kelly's Last Stand, and it was a sensational and newsworthy event being reported and followed across the world. So next time we'll talk about the actual siege and its shocking outcome. Just to finish off this episode, I think it was a sad and possibly misjudged end for poor Aaron, and he was buried four days after his murder in an unmarked grave in Beechworth. His wife gave birth to their baby soon afterwards, but it didn't survive infancy, so it's pretty awful all round. Remember to check for the additional material on the Australian Histories podcast website at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au especially for those images that I spoke about. And remember that contact details can be found on that webpage also. I look forward to exploring the Glenrowan siege and the events that followed in a fortnight. So take care of yourselves. I'll talk to you again in two weeks. Cheers. Cheers.